Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, local Republicans turn on themselves, hoping to unseat one of their own. The smart money in Olympia is pretty tired of Robert Sutherland, and there's just been a lot of support for his opponent. A recap of the week's debates, but did they really change the mind of any Washington voter? She was talking about the issues that matter to them. She was talking about inflation. She was talking about gas prices. She was talking about public schools. Plus, how many voters are actually ticket-splitting, and how might they affect the midterms, and why one local city is moving to ban roosters. All of that coming up this hour, but we begin with the new British Prime Minister. On Monday, Rishi Sunak emerged as the new leader of the Conservative Party and the new leader of the United Kingdom. So, who is this guy? I'm sure a lot of people in the UK know who he is, but those of us here in the United States may not be familiar with him. Joining me now is Ishan Theroux. He's a correspondent for the Washington Post, and uh, you cover the world and a lot of uh, UK politics. So uh, who is this guy? Who is Rishi Sunak now that he has claimed power? Well, Rishi Sunak is 42 years old. So as prime minister, he's, I think, the youngest prime minister in Britain for at least a couple of centuries. He is somebody who rode the express train to power uh, within the Conservative Party, within the Tories. Uh, He uh, is the child of immigrants of Indian origin who moved to the United Kingdom in the 1960s from East Africa, from former British colonies in East Africa. And he had a relatively humble middle-class background, did well in school, went to Oxford, found himself in the same kind of pipeline as other prominent British politicians like, say, Tony Blair or former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And uh, after a, a career initially in finance, he was at Goldman Sachs, he worked at a hedge fund, he went to business school. He kind of parachuted his way into the firmament of, of Tory politics, first entered office in 2015 as a member of parliament, and then made his way from there. He was a former finance minister under Boris Johnson. And then amid the kind of intrigues that have consumed the ruling party in Britain, in the tussle that ensued within the party, he came to the fore. Okay, so you say he's the son of immigrants, uh, obviously has an Indian background. What does that mean for him and what he brings to the office? It's really interesting. I think it's quite interesting symbolically, of course. For Britain to have uh, a prime minister of Indian origin is a is a rather momentous thing, given uh, Britain's history in India, the fact that Britain lorded over the Indian subcontinent for two centuries, that we can have uh, at the kind of tail end of empire, someone of Indian origin come to the fore. It says a lot about uh, Britain as a multicultural society. It says a lot about the, the place of the Indian diaspora in the West, which is which for you know as someone myself who is from the Indian diaspora, uh, quite heartening. Uh, at the same time, people have been talking about Sunak's ascension as a kind of Barack Obama moment for Britain. I'm not sure if that's a parallel that makes sense, uh, because questions of his identity and his cultural background have not shadowed his political story as much as they did, say, uh, the campaign of Obama uh, when he came to power, and of course, uh, the reaction to him in the, the years that followed. We'll see if questions about Sunak's identity matter to the Tory base in the years to come, but they haven't so far. And Sunak himself has not really leaned in that heavily into his Indian Hindu identity. Is he the first person of color to be prime minister in the UK? He's the first person of color, and he's the first person uh, to be non-Christian as well. What does that mean? Because we know that the church has a a much bigger role in England than it does, say, here in the United States. Uh, Yes, it it is a fascinating moment where you will have a practicing Hindu in the ceremony 
a new position to appoint bishops to the Church of England. Uh, that is a great and interesting wrinkle. But at the same time, I think it's fair to say that uh, the religiosity of British society is uh, no nothing in comparison to that of American politics. Probably not that divisive an issue there as it would be here in the U.S. to have a Hindu. If you think about some of the, the Indian origin politicians who've come close to considering presidential bids, people like Nikki Haley or Bobby Jindal, they're very much more deracinated and removed from their Indian and Hindu cultural backgrounds than someone like Rishi Sunak. And here in Seattle, we've got Representative Pramila Jayapal, who was born in India. Yes, absolutely. And you're seeing a new wave of these politicians who are less shy about their backgrounds, very proud of their origins and their religion and their culture, and uh, don't necessarily see it as something that they at the same time need to lean into. Uh, that their politics are their politics. You have uh, someone like Pramila Jayapal is very different from someone like uh, Nikki Haley and very different from someone like Rishi Sunak. This is a phenomenon you'll see across the West because you have uh, upwardly mobile Indian diasporas in many countries. You, you've already had an, Indi- an Indian origin prime minister in Portugal. You have soon in the coming weeks, you will see an, the incoming prime minister in Ireland is also of Indian origin. So there is a, a, a larger story of representation that Indians around the world's are quite proud about. Now, Rishi Sunak may be a member of the Conservative Party in Great Britain, but his views, at least when it comes to finance and the economy, are a little bit different than the mainstream, or at least from what we saw from Liz Truss. Well, he is, uh, in many ways, the conventional uh, center-right, right-wing politician when it comes to uh, questions of the economy. He is somebody who, in his heart of hearts, is uh, an aspiring Thatcherite or Reaganite uh, politician, believes in further deregulation, uh, wants to fuel growth, wants to cut away at uh, what he may view as the impediments to growth. And, but, but the issue in Britain in recent months, and especially uh, the, the mistakes that collapsed uh, the very short-lived tenure of former Prime Minister Liz Truss, was uh, that they took a far too ideological approach. They put forward a proposal to give uh, massive tax cuts to the ultra-rich. Uh, that basically just the suggestion of it cratered the British economy. So the conservatives have moved back from that. Sunak will probably not put forward such an ideological agenda. He will champion himself as a kind of uh, smart, pragmatic technocrat. Uh, and whether he actually manages to, manages to be one is another thing, but he very much, you should see him in the kind of mold as someone like French President Emmanuel Macron, this uh, very slick, sharp agent of neoliberalism as critics see it but also somebody who may know how to get the British economy going without being too uh, ideologically disastrous about it. What does his rise to power mean for the relationship between the UK and the US? We can expect a lot of continuity. I think, by and large, someone like Rishi Sunak will take a a pretty conventional approach to transatlantic relations, uh, will continue the level of support that Britain has for Ukraine, which is now one of the major issues that uh, collectively are animating uh, policymakers in London and Washington. The Tories in general are more pro-climate action than the Republicans in the U.S., as long as there's a democratic government. You may find a lot of commonality on certain global issues. And what does he mean for the average Briton? I mean, a lot of people are, were very critical of, of Liz Truss, very critical of Boris Johnson. If you were to have snap elections right now, the conservatives would lose in a landslide. But now they have another conservative leader. And, and, and what does it mean for them? You know, that's a really interesting question, because Rishi Sunak was not elected by a general election. He was 
put into power by selection within his party. So his immediate concern actually is not really about the British public as much as it is doing things that preserve uh, a certain degree of Tory party unity. Because without without that, uh, he may not be long for the job either, just like those trucks. So his priority will be taking certain actions that calm the tensions within the party, that rally the base to a certain extent, but also preserve um, parliamentary unity as well. And then going forward, absolutely, you know, Britain is facing a lot of uh, difficult times. The, the approval ratings for the Conservatives right now and the polling shows that they would, as you said, lose in a landslide to Labour. I think Sunak's game would be to steady the ship and hope that those polls will change over time. So how does he do that? How does he adjust things not only within his party, but within the UK itself? We were waiting for some real concrete proposals. The main things to watch right now are the onset of possible recession in Britain, the fact that there is a massive cost of living crisis for the ordinary Britain, the fact that uh, there is a lot of fear over inflation and rising uh, gas prices uh, to heat homes in the winter. And so we'll see what 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 levers Sunak pulls in terms of policy to address some of that stuff. He may uh, turn to uh, proposals from, say, labor, his labor rivals, and exact certain taxes from fossil fuel companies to help make up for the costs of subsidizing uh, heat and so forth. So we'll see what, what toolkit he puts out. Right now, we're in a stage where we're waiting for that, those ideas. And, and then, of course, Beyond that, we'll see how he actually implements them. Well, that seems like a big departure from what Liz Truss had proposed because she rejected pretty much any idea that came from the Labor Party. I remember that town hall where she said, you know, this idea of a windfall tax is a Labor idea and it's a, essentially a, a non-starter. But he seems more open to some of those more liberal reforms to help the economy get going and help those who are in need. Yes, he does. We'll see exactly how it's framed and what he actually does. I don't think he'll want to be saddled with the image of actually following a labor policy. But I think it's clear, and he's made it clear, that he wants to take a more pragmatic approach, one that is less tethered to the ideology of the the Tory base, Uh, even when he in his heart of hearts may actually want to pursue those policies. He is somebody, after all, who uh, comes from a a finance background, somebody who uh, he and his wife have a collective fortune close to a billion dollars. And, uh, and, you know, it is very much cut from the cloth at this point of uh, a segment of the British establishment that may want to see the kind of reforms that trust touted, but recognizes that now is not the time to go in that direction. So how soon can we expect some of these reforms? Because he's really only been in office for about a week now. We'll see. We have to see what kind of budget he puts forward. We'll have to see um, as his cabinet gets formed, uh, the ideological direction it takes. Uh, then there'll be deliberations across the political system about how this goes. I mean, it's probably a matter of weeks. That, and then uh, the actual effects of what they implement will be probably only felt in a matter of months. All right, Ishan Tharoor, he's a reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks for having me. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Republicans are pushing to unseat one of their own for being too conservative. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, we're just a couple of weeks out from the midterm elections. It's not just all the congressmen. 435 members of the U.S. House of Representatives and 35 senators are up for re-election. But you also have every single member of the Washington State House of Representatives 
up for re-election. A lot of stuff on your ballot out there. And in the last couple of weeks, a lot of money is flowing into some of these very competitive districts. We'll get to the 8th Congressional District between Kim Schreier and Matt Larkin coming up in just a few moments. But first, we wanted to talk with Paul Query of the Washington Observer, who has been looking into some of the money that's going in to unseat Robert Sutherland. He is one of the most conservative members of the Washington State Legislature. He is in the 39th Legislative District. That's up in Snohomish and Skagit County out in the Granite Falls area. He was one of the three members of the Washington State House of Representatives that attended that Mike Lindell My Pillow Symposium on uh, the election fraud of 2020, the election fraud that wasn't there. Uh, he's pushed a lot of these conspiracy theories, and now there's a big push to push him out. And once again, joining me, Paul Query of the Washington Observer. What's going on here in the 39th? Basically, what you have going on here is sort of the smart money in Olympia is pretty tired of Robert Sutherland. And there's just been a lot of support for his opponent um, among kind of the moneyed players there. He had a fairly crowded primary in August. Um, he had Sam Lowe, who is a Snohomish County councilman from that area. And then I, think, I believe there were a couple of Democrats as well. Sutherland got about 33% of the vote. It's a heavily Republican district and Lowe advanced uh, to face him. Lowe has far more money than he does because sort of the establishment players um, kind of backed him. And Sutherland was having difficulty raising money. And now we're seeing an independent campaign against Sutherland. It's specifically in opposition to reelecting Sutherland. It's called Do Not Rehire, I think. And that's money from the Realtors, the Service Employees International Union, Local 775, which is one of the most politically active unions in Washington. Uh, the building trades are there and the Washington Hospitality Association is there. These are groups that, for the most part, don't really work together and in some cases actively don't get along. And, you know, they're all kind of in against Sutherland and, and for Sam Lowe. So how did the Republican base really turn on Representative Sutherland? What did he do? I think it was mostly that he was embracing these conspiracy theories about the 2020 election and traveling out of state to kind of participate in the national noise about that. And, you know, I think he missed a lot of votes in the last few years and and uh, wasn't there on some, uh, you know, for some key bills that some of these folks wanted. But it seems like in the past with with other candidates embracing President Trump's claims that the election of 2020 was stolen would actually help Republican candidates for the most part. But this is sort of an interesting one where it's worked against him. Yeah. And I think that that's active of some places elsewhere in the state where you have Republican districts and certainly a faction of the Republicans were supportive of President Trump and our believers in 2020 uh, stop the steal conspiracies. But a lot of the Republican voters out there don't feel that way. And there's still a kind of minority block of Democrats. And if you put those two, you know, the second two groups together, that's enough to oust some of these folks. So if Sutherland is ousted and, and you have Lowe come in as the new Republican representative of the 39th, how does that change things? Um, I think that what you have is just a kind of general shifting a little bit toward the center of that House Republican caucus. It's very unlikely at this point that the House Republicans are going to take over the majority. Um, but they, their caucus might be a little bit larger after the election. And if there are sort of fewer of those kinds of hard right lawmakers in the caucus, then, you know, might be a little more room for compromise, a little, you know, just a little more constructive dialogue. 
the other two lawmakers that attended that my pillow symposium about the 2020 election and, and the false claims of election fraud were Brad Clippert and Vicky Kraft, neither of which are on the ballot this time around. That's right. Um, they both uh, chose to run for Congress. Clippert ran in the fourth um, out in eastern Washington, and Kraft, who's from the Vancouver area, ran in the third in southwest Washington. And they both lost in the primary quite, quite badly, actually. And so what does that tell you about how the Republican Party is shifting in Washington state? Is it becoming more moderate? I'm not sure that you can draw, jump to that conclusion. Both of those primaries um, for those congressional races were quite, were quite crowded. And I think better known candidates um, finished ahead of, of those two folks. Turning to the 8th Congressional District, this is one of those races that could determine control of the U.S. House of Representatives. It is just a straight toss-up at this point. Democratic Representative Kim Schreier facing her strongest challenge yet against Matt Larkin, the Republican. And we've seen a lot of really nasty ads on TV and on the radio so far here in the last couple of weeks. Who's raising the most money? Who's spending the most money? And where's it coming from? Schreier's an incumbent, and so she has a pretty substantial, what, what we like to call hard money lead over Matt Larkin. But there's a ton of money coming in from outside groups on um on both sides. And the largest amount that I've seen is coming from the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is a longstanding super PAC with ties to the House Republican Caucus um, in Washington, D.C. That's money that comes from, you know, really wealthy donors on the right, you know, folks who write $10 million checks. And it's kind of no holds barred in those races. You know, you're right. I think that Everyone thought that Schreier was, you know, among the most vulnerable incumbents in the in the country. You know, I think probably the Dobbs decision striking down Roe versus Wade might have energized some Democratic voters and that might have changed some dynamics. And Larkin came a little bit out of left field in the primary. Reagan Dunn, who's a King County councilman from that area, was in the race. And so was Jesse Jensen, who took a fair sized bite out of Schreier in 2020. Um, but Larkin sort of squeaked squeak through. And even though you might think of him as, as relatively unknown, he was the Republican candidate for attorney general in 2020. And while he lost badly statewide, he actually won the eighth. So what are we expecting to see in the next couple of weeks, particularly with some of these ads? Because I know Kim Schreier in the packs that are aligned with her, or I shouldn't say aligned, that are supporting her because they can't coordinate, are trying to paint Larkin as this extreme Republican, particularly when it comes to abortion rights. That's correct. I think you'll see a ton of that. And, you know, the the two sides pretty much up and down the ballot are kind of talking past one another a lot. From the Democrats, you hear a lot of rhetoric about abortion and protecting an abortion, abortion rights. And the Republicans, for the most part, would prefer to talk about inflation and high gasoline prices and rising crime and other issues. And so I think that you're going to see a ton of money spent, especially in the eighth to try and get those messages across and and which ones resonate. It'll be interesting to see. The polling's been a little bit all over the place on where folks are on, on those issues. If we were to venture a guess, you think Schreier hangs on or do you think the eighth flips? My general sense is that those districts, those areas have been trending toward the Democrats in recent elections. But Traditionally, the president's party does very poorly in the midterms and national on a national level. There's been a lot of reporting and a lot of you know opinion research in the recent weeks that things have started to shift the Republicans away a little bit. 
So we'll have to see, of course, the election just a couple of weeks out. Paul Query with the Washington Observer, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be with you. We have to take another quick break, but later on, did those debates really change anyone's mind and why one local city wants to ban roosters when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment? Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. If you haven't got your ballot already, you better contact your local county auditor because it's time to get those ballots filled out and sent in. Joining me now is Randy Peppel, Republican strategist, and Kathy Allen, Democratic strategist. We wanted to get a sense of the state of the race here in Washington State. A couple of big statewide races, and the first one that we wanted to talk about, uh, obviously the Senate race between incumbent Patty Murray, she's been there since 1992, and challenger Tiffany Smiley out of the Tri-Cities. The polls have been back and forth and uh, tightening up a little bit here in the last couple of weeks. Where do things stand? We'll start with you, Randy. Well, if you want to know where they stand, you look where people are putting their money. And uh, the story's out today about the millions that are flowing in from national left-wing groups to try to save Patty Murray. Emily's List uh, dumped a couple million in new TV money. And they don't do that if you're going to win in a walk. And what they're seeing is what the voters have been hearing uh, out of Patty Murray, which is, She has no solutions going forward. All she has is a 30-year career that is reduced to trying to scare voters about an opponent who is new to public life. And uh, the voters are saying, you know what? That doesn't work anymore. The scare tactics aren't going to work on us. Kathy, I imagine you disagree. Oh, yes, I do. Randy's been playing this song for 30 years. In all of this, what I can say is that, you know, Patty's still eight plus up in her worst polls here. And the fact is, is that two weeks at eight percentage points is a lot of, uh, of ground to cover. I have to say that, you know, there is nobody that gets votes as cleanly as Patty Murray does, given the fact that she has a list of hundreds of thousands of people that she's helped individually over these last 30 years. She's the best constituency worker I have ever seen. And so I say, yawn, this one's over. Go to the next. The debate between the two last weekend, do you think that changed anyone's minds or voters pretty solidified in their opinions? I don't think it changed a person's vote, much less many people's vote. You know, it was hard enough to find, I have to say. It was on three different stations, and I have to tell you that it was confusing for people to try to figure out how they actually get in the door to some of these if you were watching it on screen here on the on streaming. But the fact is, is that I don't think it was a big draw. The Murray campaign wanted to make it as hard as possible for you to find that debate because they did not want the public to compare the two candidates uh, face to face. And the reality is, no, not a lot of minds are ever changed by a debate because the people who tend to tune into debates are those that have already made up their mind. But those that did uh, tune in, those uh, few swing voters that did, are going to be smiley voters now. Because, again, she was talking about the issues that matter to them. She was talking about inflation. She was talking about gas prices. She was talking about public schools. Patty Murray is talking about fear. The Democrats want to scare you into voting against someone. And right now, Tiffany Smiley is trying to say, here's a reason to vote for me. And that's resonating with voters. And that's why all the polls that have come out show one key thing. Patty Murray isn't at 50% yet. And if after 30 years in office, you haven't secured the vote 
nothing in the last two weeks that she does is going to secure her that vote. Well, I don't know. I would say that 49 percent is pretty good, which is what she 49 is a losing number. And as you take a look at it, the fact is, is that, you know, it doesn't take a math genius to figure this out. If if, uh, Smiley's at 41 and Patty's at 49, duh. I think 49 is a losing number on election night. We both know that, Kathy. If the incumbent hasn't secured those votes over the last 30 years, what's going to happen to cause any of those people that aren't there to go, oh, yeah, it, it turns out that is the answer? No, that's the problem. The answer is going to be Tiffany Smiley. So why is it different this time around as opposed to all the previous elections that Patty Murray has run in? One, this is a uh, midterm election with a Democrat president. And when that occurs, it tends to draw down Democrat party numbers. When you're running in a presidential year, when, when the Democrats have a winning presidential candidate, that tends to lift her numbers. And she's benefited from that in the past. So that's the biggest difference. The second is... She is not talking about the issues that matter to the voters. Right now, we have inflation that we have not seen in 40 years. Typical we have gas like prices Randy, we've Randy never seen this high. Taking and the microphone and just slithering issues. on because that's just not true. What voters are talking about, number one issue, Roe v. Wade in regards to every, Kathy, that's every right. one of these. Among the people and at the if you are talking about Roe v. Wade, you are talking yep, about issues the people of the Even Patty if that's it's an issue for me. Yeah, the people at Patty Murray's fundraiser were talking about Roe v. Wade being overturned. <laughs> Not the very few undecided voters that remain out at large in Washington State. And that's why Patty Murray's going to lose is she's not talking to those people. Do I have to jump in and get my referee's whistle here between the two of you for this debate? But uh, let's move on to the next statewide election, and that's for Secretary of State. In this one, the Republicans are shut out. Technically, you have Steve Hobbs, the incumbent Democrat who was appointed by Governor Jay Inslee to take over after Kim Wyman, the Republican, uh, went off to take a job within the Biden administration. And Julie Anderson, the Pierce County auditor, nonpartisan, was also one of those that advanced through the top two system we have here in Washington State. How is this race shaping up? I think it's looking pretty good for Julie. I got to tell you that in terms of this, what, what people tell me is that they are looking at this race mostly to see who is it that talks elections, that understands elections, that isn't trying to do something that's going to just favor their partisan position, but is actually going to try to do it. So they're meeting the 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 probably the best different causes of democracy that we're trying to uphold that which is something that we're supposed to be honoring. The fact is, is that I think Julie has done a good job. And, and, and at the debate, I was quite impressed. I was very, very clearly watching. And I have to say that I thought she had command from the beginning, just talking a little bit about all of the issues that seem to be in her purview as the Secretary of State. She reminds me, ironically, of Republican Kim Wyman. Jeff, the uh, election provides one of the certainties that we have in November. And that is that for the first time since 1964, uh, the voters of Washington State will not select a Republican to be the Secretary of State. It's the longest winning streak uh, in the country is Republicans have held that office since 64. The reason that no Republican uh, is going to uh, win is because they didn't make it through the primary, in part because Jay Inslee decided I would much rather take Steve Hobbs out 
of the Washington State Senate and park him uh, in a position that he is not qualified to hold at the <laughs> Secretary of State spot. Uh, and I can fill uh, the uh, state Senate seat with a Democrat that will vote for my crazy stuff. And that's what occurred. And now you have uh, Steve Hobbs running for uh, election uh, after being appointed to the spot. And he doesn't have uh, any background in elections. Julie Anderson does. She it, runs the Pierce County uh, election system. And running as a, as a nonpartisan, she draws a contrast with Hobbs that uh, no one else could do. And I suspect she's going to win. I think it looks uh, it looks pretty good here. And even though uh, what's happened is that Steve Hobbs has raised another uh, 300000 more than Julie. Julie's raised plenty of money to get the word out. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Democratic strategist Kathy Allen, Republican strategist Randy Peppel, thank you so much for your time and insight. You got thank it. You got. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, voting for one party at the top of the ticket and the other down ballot. We'll look at the phenomenon of ticket splitting when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Here's Kim Shepard. With such narrow margins in Congress, both parties are pushing hard to control every seat they can. But that's getting more complicated as we see the political trend of ticket splitting reemerge. ABC's Andy Field is joining us now, and I understand there is some new research out about this. There is. It, it seems that more and more Americans are at least considering it. You know, for many years, back in the 60s and the, and the 70s and 80s, it was not unusual for people to split tickets. They weren't all in on Republican or Democrat, but it changed significantly. Back in 2016, every state saw its voters favor the same party for president and Senate. At the same time, about 11% of voters nationwide selected a different party for president and Senate. Now, that was down from between 20 and 30% in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. That's a big chunk of voters back then, but it's not so much anymore. Now we're seeing it reverse, at least in the polling. We don't know if it's actually going to happen on Election Day, but from polls we're hearing, for example, in, in Georgia, where you have Herschel Walker is carrying around a lot of baggage, personal baggage, and Raphael Warnock, who is the Democrat, Republicans in that state are saying, look, we just can't vote for a guy who said he's completely against abortion. And now, even today, a second woman has come forward saying that Marshal Walker forced her to have an abortion. They're saying that that contradiction is too much for them to take, and they're going to hold their nose and vote for a Democrat. While at the same time, voting for a Republican, Governor Kemp, for re-election in that state. So there are split loyalties there. Same thing's happening with Dr. Oz and, and Fetterman because of Fetterman's medical problems. But Dr. Oz seems to have gained a bit from last night's debate. Uh, will they split the ticket, vote Republican for Senate, and then vote Democrat for governor? We'll find out on Election Day. So ticket splitting isn't new. Is there any speculation about why we're seeing it reemerge now? I think there's so many troublesome candidates out there. Uh, we, we see, especially in the Republican Party, some of these really extreme candidates, uh, people that are coming up with things that even mainstream to slightly right-of-center Republicans are saying, I cannot vote for this person. So this could make a difference in who controls the Senate, who controls the legislatures. It didn't make much of a difference the last time around, but it could this time because of this polarization we're seeing. And with many candidates, especially who can win Republican primaries with Donald Trump's support, 
people who to this day are still denying that the election was won by Joe Biden, those candidates are still out there. And there are many voters who are saying, no, we're tired of this. We, we want to get some normalcy back into government. And perhaps they won't vote for those candidates. But again, these are polls. And polls have been unreliable in the past. We're going to have to wait for Election Day to see if this actually holds up. Yeah, I also thought, you know, isn't this really how we should all be voting anyway? Looking at each individual candidate's record and not just the party affiliation? You would think, but it's also very easy in many ballots to just kind of go straight down the party line. Democrat, 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 Republican, Republican. It makes it easy. A lot of people don't bother even to do the research on some of the races, and they're going to go, well, I guess I mostly vote for Democrats, so I think I'll vote for Democrats here, even if I don't know who this candidate is or what they stand for. ABC's Andy Field on the Northwest Newsline. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, Musk's move to buy Twitter and the fearful response from the site's users when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Once again, here's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard. Elon Musk sauntered into Twitter headquarters like he was the king of the castle. And even though the deal isn't finalized quite yet, Musk is already making comments about what he plans to do with the company. ABC's Derek Dennis is on this story. And for a billionaire, Musk certainly made an interesting entrance yesterday with that bathroom sink. Yeah, bathroom sink, a lot of speculation on what he's trying to say with that. You've heard the phrase, everything but the kitchen sink, but the bathroom sink is a new one. Either way, he's trying, it seems, to sort of satisfy advertisers by giving some detail into what he's thinking about the future of Twitter as he is very close to finalizing his deal to buy the social media networking site for $44 billion. Musk uh, posted on Twitter sort of a long statement saying, you know, he's not against advertising. He thinks uh, if it's relevant, it'll be good for users and good for the companies. But also he talked about it should not be a free-for-all hellscape for opinion. It has to be opinion that won't incite violence and is respectful for all. So he seems to be trying to satisfy a lot of the concerns that have been reported widely about what he would do with the site once he takes over. Yeah, so initially Musk seemed interested in acquiring Twitter because he felt like the moderation on the platform was doing damage to free speech. And now it sounds like he's tempered his plans to really do anything about it. Right. And no mention of former President Trump. There was a lot of speculation that he would allow the former president back on Twitter after he was banned following his comments around the 2020 election. No mention of that in his statement. But he did say that he doesn't want it to be a free-for-all, that it should be sort of a commonplace for the world world to express opinion. And so that uh, would and should satisfy a lot of advertisers. There was also concern that he would limit car advertising because, you know, he's the CEO of Tesla and that maybe he would just allow Tesla products to be advertised on Twitter. No mention of that, but he did sort of give a broad stroke saying that if the advertising is relevant to the users, then it would be a win for everybody. Yeah. And he does, like you said, he's got his hands in so many pots these days. How much involvement is he really expected to have in the day-to-day operations of Twitter? 
Well, it seems like a lot. I mean, just because of the nature of his tweets, just even leading up to today's tweet, he's talked about everything from disinformation, misinformation, making sure that uh, the platform becomes more inclusive, he's talked about as well. And look, he's got $44 billion on the hook here for this, this deal that is expected to finalize tomorrow. So a lot of money on the line here and a lot of fears and jitters among investors that uh, Musk is trying to satisfy. All right. Well, we'll all be keeping an eye on it for sure. ABC's Derek Dennis with us on the Northwest News Line as Elon Musk takes over Twitter. That's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard. Finally this week, no more roosters, peacocks, or pet rabbits in the city of Everett. Several animal code changes are being considered, and Carlene Johnson has the details. If you live near someone who has a rooster, you know how noisy they can be very early in the morning. <laughs> Well, rooster crowing days may be nearing an end in Everett with the city's animal services manager telling city council last week they get a lot of complaints about the noise. People who have them now would have to give them up. Other code changes would ban peacocks and the sale of rabbits, which often end up at shelters or get dumped off in a city park when the owner doesn't want them anymore. Everett has the only shelter in the area that takes in rabbits. The Daily Herald reports they're managing 10 right now. Another change would allow more cats and dogs in a home so long as they're spayed or neutered. Right now, it's a limit of two. That would increase to four. City Council will take up the code changes on November 2nd. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelip. Thank you for listening and have a good week.